What am I going to wear today? It's a question that plagues all of us mere mortals on a daily basis, but for superheroes, the outfit choosing process is pretty simple. Slap on your tights, put on a mask, and hit the streets. Even changing into an outfit is easier for the super folk. Give Superman a phone booth, then you'll be ready to fight crime in a second. With a thought, Hal Jordan can go from ordinary pilot to intergalactic space cop. Pop open his special ring, and the Flash can throw on his costume only as fast as the fastest man alive could. As flashy as all of those heroes are when it comes to their costumes, and how they put them on, none compare to how Wonder Woman gets dressed. With but a spin, mild-mannered Diana Prince can transform into the star-spangled Amazon hero Wonder Woman, at least in the 1970s TV show. Not that Diana hasn't pulled off the twirl transformation once or twice in the comics, either. Bright, colorful, and a little revealing, Wonder Woman's costume is recognizable all around the world. Some may find it a tad confusing that a trained warrior would wear what amounts to a bathing suit into battle, but regardless of your personal opinion, Wonder Woman has rocked some variation of her costume for over 75 years. The clothes really do make the woman, because Wonder Woman's costume is such a staple of pop culture, and believe it or not, is actually a major asset in the hero's crusade against the cruelties of the world. Hi, and welcome to Comics 401, the masterclass podcast on your favorite female superheroes. I'm your host, Michael Dalamonte, and in volume one of this podcast, we're discussing all things Wonder Woman. And an analysis of any comic book character would be incomplete without addressing their costume. Like a suit for a lawyer or a badge and pot belly for a cop, a hero's costume is intrinsically linked to their identity as a hero. But somewhat like Batman or Iron Man, whose costumes are more battle suits outfitted with special crime-fighting technology, Diana's superhero costume is more than just a fashion statement. It might not look like it, but the Wonder Woman outfit is both a battle armor and a superhero costume. Wonder Woman's emblem, tiara, lasso, and even her earrings, when she had them, all serve a specific purpose and actively aid the Amazon when battling all sorts of baddies. Not simply pieces of apparel, the parts of Wonder Woman's costume are actually useful tools and tie into the history of the character. And then there's Wonder Woman's fashionable and functional accessories, like Diana's silver bracers, invisible plane, and mental radio. Yes, the mental radio is actually a real thing in Wonder Woman comics. And to begin our discussion of Wonder Woman's costume and accessories in her crusade against crime, the mental radio is as good a place as any to start. So, what the hell is it? The mental radio is a piece of Amazonian technology that was first introduced in Wonder Woman's Golden Age years. Like the name suggests, the mental radio is literally a radio for the mind. Or, really, to be more 2017 about it, the mental radio is like a telepathic smartphone, allowing Diana to send and receive calls with her mind. When directly hooked up to the mental radio, which has a giant screen and apparatus to fit around the user's head, Diana can take video calls to anyone else who also has a mental radio setup, which is really only Amazon's and Paradise Island. When used like this, the mental radio is basically like a precursor to Skype. But Diana doesn't really need to be directly linked to the mental radio to get messages. Through sheer force of will, someone can think at Diana strong enough that the mental radio will act as a go-between of sorts, relaying the message directly into Diana's brain. 
Amazons can perform this feat easily, as they're trained to have a stronger mental constitution than us normal humans, but mere mortals could do it too. Etta Candy, Dinah's plump and boisterous pal, is able to use the mental radio very early on in Wonder Woman's stories. Later, Steve Trevor can use it too, with both of them usually doing so to let Wonder Woman know about some impending danger. The mental radio even granted Diana some mild telepathic powers. In issue 217, volume 1, when the villain known as the Duke of Deception casts a spell of illusion on the entire UN building in New York, the mental radio lets Diana dive into people's minds and then see the illusions plaguing them. A nifty trick, but for the most part, the mental radio is really just used to warn Diana or when she needs to make a long distance call to Paradise Island. Over the years, from the golden age of comics to the bronze age, the mental radio would dis and reappear, mostly depending on what Diana was doing at the time. For example, during her depowered years, the mental radio was completely absent, but would come back later on. Into the modern age of comics, after the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover, or just post-crisis to use the lingo, the mental radio would disappear forever. Remember, the Amazons of this era lost their technological superiority, so it would make no sense that they'd be able to build a sophisticated, mind-controlled telephone system that is completely unencumbered by wires or distances. Pretty much the exact same thing happened to Diana's invisible plane, one of the most famous of Wonder Woman items. The Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington even has an exhibit dedicated to Wonder Woman's invisible plane. Sure, it's just an empty room with a sign providing some info on the invisible to the naked eye aircraft, but it does go to show how Diana's special plane is really embedded into Western pop culture. One thing that always baffles people when it comes to the invisible plane is why would Wonder Woman really need it? I guess the whole invisibility thing doesn't tend to bother people, but they have a point, because Wonder Woman can fly at extreme speeds, so why would she need a plane to get around? Well, the answer is when Wonder Woman was first launched, and we first see the wondrous Invisijet, Diana couldn't fly. Flight is a post-crisis power of Wonder Woman's, so back in the day, from 1942 to 1987, Diana really needed the invisible plane to get around. Made of Amazonian, the strongest metal in the world, and completely invisible to the naked eye, and also sophisticated scanners, the invisible plane is among the first items bequeathed to Diana in her journey into man's world when she first becomes Wonder Woman. Faster than anything made by man, the invisible plane can also respond to verbal commands. As Queen Hippolyta explains to Diana in a backstory tale on the invisible plane in issue 48 volume 1, as was the case in the many years from the Golden Age of Comics and into the Silver and Bronze, some conflicting stories came out later about the origins of the Invisible Plane. Issue 128 would undo the Amazon construction of the aircraft and instead have it that the goddess Athena actually guided Diana to the bottom of the sea where the Invisible Plane already rested. Well, not the plane exactly, but a winged Pegasus that when rescued from the depths of the ocean turns into the invisible plane after passing through a storm cloud. Anything can really happen when you just use the reasoning, uh, magic did it. The invisible plane would undergo some slight transformations over the years, as it went from being a propeller-based aircraft into more of a futuristic jet, to really be more in line with what audiences would imagine a futuristic aircraft to look like. But, much like the mental radio, the Invisiplane would be retconned out of Wonder Woman comics in the post-crisis relaunch. That is, until the year 1996. 
Wonder Woman writer John Byrne decided to bring the famous Invisible Jet back into the Wonder Woman fold during his run in the comic, specifically in issue 117, volume 2. Here we have Diana adventuring in an Arctic underground civilization hidden from the world for thousands of years known as Lansinar. Led by animal-headed aliens that look like Egyptian deities, and they were Egyptian deities, Diana ends up aiding the lowly subjects of the alien rulers and establishes a new social order. As thanks, the Lancerians gift Diana a special invisible disc, which can turn into anything Diana wishes, like a plane. Diana's imagination wouldn't be limited to just a plane, though, as she mentally wills the device into assuming many number of forms, including a gigantic wonder dome, a giant fortress in the sky that Diana lives in for a while. Around this time, we also get to learn a bit more about the origins of the Invisiplane slash Wonder Dome in issue 159. Told from the perspective of the Wonder Dome itself, we learn that the device is a sentient being and is actually in love with Diana. Knowing that Diana thinks of it more as a machine than a living thing, the Wonder Dome feels rejected and calls out to his native people or more entities, a collective of alien morphing crystals that when together, call themselves the Ring. The Wonder Dome, which looks like a translucent egg in its natural form, broke off from its family at some point, and eventually made its way to Earth. And despite feeling lonely and unwanted by Diana, the Wonder Dome admits it can't leave her side, and continues to be her faithful companion and ultimate tool against the world's evils. And the Wonder Dome makes good on its commitment. When the Amazons lead an assault against alien invaders, the Wonder Dome transforms itself into an armada of swan-like battle chariots. When Diana wants to be more immersed in man's world, she turns the Wonder Dome into an embassy on Earth that allows people to communicate empathically, something Diana hopes world leaders will use to better understand each other. The Wonder Dome is also instrumental in the remaking of Paradise Island around issue 177 volume 2, when the limitless potential of the morphing crystal allows the Amazons to make all sorts of crazy constructs, thus re-establishing the Amazons as a techno-society. Unfortunately, the Wonder Dome would meet an untimely end by around issue 201. When a giant tsunami is threatening the lives of many, Diana uses the Wonder Dome to repel the natural disaster at the cost of its life. Stripped of its sentience and morphing qualities, the alien device can only take the shape of a plane thereafter, stripping an important piece of technology away from the Amazons, something they're not all that happy about with Diana. From then on, the invisible plane retreats to the background of Diana's adventures, if ever seen at all, which is true even today. There is a nod to the invisible plane in the recent Rebirth Year One tales of Wonder Woman's origin, where the Amazons transform the aircraft Steve Trevor crash onto the island into an invisible jet, but that's basically it. Anyways, enough about psychic planes and radios, let's get on to the good stuff. Wonder Woman's costume itself. Overall, the costume has retained its core features throughout the 75 years Wonder Woman has been on the comic book scene, with some slight variations. In her first appearance in 1942, Diana's original costume had her wearing an eagle on her chest, atop a red bust, star-spangled culottes slash a skirt, and red high heel boots. A slight change to the getup appeared in Wonder Woman 7 in 1943, as Diana's culottes were made into shorts. 1959 would bring about another minor change, with Diana's boots being substituted for sandals, first high heeled, 
because why wouldn't a superhero sandals have a huge heel, then into a far more functional flat style later on. From 1968 to 1971, when Diana was a non-powered vigilante, she regularly sported her white spy suit along with other outfits and accessories. In April 1973, when Wonder Woman was relaunched with superpowers again, the original costume comes back, a modified version of the old one, with a star-spangled bikini-esque bottom and not shorts, and high heel red boots being the major changes. This incarnation of Wonder Woman's costume would be the mainstay for years to come. Different artists would alter specific elements over the years, but for the most part, the 1973 version of Diana's costume is the one most people recognize, and the one that's been around the longest. Into the 1990s though, something started to happen with Diana's costume, specifically the bottom half. Not satisfied with the most famous female superhero in the world wearing something akin to a one-piece bathing suit, DC Comics felt that they needed to sexualize Wonder Woman's look even more. And this is about when Diana's bottom half of the costume went from a kind of bikini bottom to a straight-up thong. Seriously, you can see Di's hip bones and pelvis area as there's so little fabric covering her bottom half. Now, the sexualization of Wonder Woman wasn't new, but things definitely got taken to a new level in the 90s. With the culottes, then hot pants slash shorts shortly after, were definitely revealing, especially in an early 1940s context. It's actually something explicitly addressed in story as a random woman calls Diana out for her revealing outfit. But this was a time when women were societally repressed on so many levels, showing one's body was seen as lewd. Women's fashion in the 1940s began to change that, and Diana can be seen as a symbol of this movement taken to a higher level. Charles Moulton, Wonder Woman's creator and a man who believed in female superiority, likely designed Diana's outfit to be a step away from traditional values, where a woman's bare body was seen as something bad. Wonder Woman's costume in this context, then, can be interpreted as a subversion of anti-feminist ideals, as Diana serves as an example of a woman who is completely comfortable with her body and doesn't feel the need to hide it. This positive interpretation of Wonder Woman's revealing costume definitely doesn't hold up over the years. Again, in the 90s, Diana's costume became so unapologetically revealing that even artists within the industry became disgruntled about it. But the thong-like bottom to the Wonder Woman costume would persist for nearly a decade, until about issue 210 in the early 2000s. Thank the gods that DC Comics overlords okayed a new version of Wonder Woman's costume in this issue, where Diana enters a gladiator-style battle wearing more of a Roman warrior tunic-style bottom. This change would only last for a few issues, and Diana would revert back to her original swimsuit-style bottom later on, but fortunately, the thong piece was never seen again. The tunic battle skirt version of the Wonder Woman costume would re-emerge, and is the costume Diana currently sports in the most recent pages of Wonder Woman. The latest costume closely resembles the original, but is made to look more like, like a bare-bones Greek warrior outfit than a spandexy superhero costume. There have also been some instances where Diana wears a different costume altogether. From around issue 93 to 101 volume 2, when Diana technically isn't Wonder Woman anymore, as fellow Amazon Artemis had taken up the mantle, Diana wears a really strange costume It looks like a mashup of something you'd find in a biker in a dominatrix's closet. Diana even got pants for a while later on in the Odyssey storyline, which also gave her a biker-esque jacket, much like the costume just mentioned. 
the pants would be cut right back with the new 52 relaunch, which had Diana effectively wearing her old costume, but with a color palette switch, only for the full-length bottom look to reappear in Wonder Woman 41. This costume looked more like a battle armor than any of Diana's previous costumes, with Diana's now gold arm bracers even sprouting tiny swords. The look was pretty short-lived, as was the run of the husband and wife duo who had created the outfit, which was awful by the way, and Diana took on her classically inspired Rebirth costume not long after. The color scheme and general aesthetic of the Wonder Woman costume remained pretty constant over the years. One aspect that did change a bunch is the emblem found on Diana's chest. Younger fans of Wonder Woman will know this to be the Double W emblem, which is practically the Wonder Woman logo. But originally, Diana's first costumes had her wearing an eagle. Much like the stars in her shorts, her tiara, and even her sandals, there were tiny little mini-stories told throughout mostly the Silver Age that told readers how a particular aspect of Diana's costume came to be. In issue 91, we get the origin of the eagle on Diana's costume, which she received as a trophy of sorts after helping a race of bird people defeat a giant eagle that was snatching them up in a net like butterflies. To give you a better sense of these rather wild tales, which were also major holes in continuity since Diana already had all these features of her outfit when she started fighting crime in issue 1, here's another on the origin of Diana's earrings, specifically found in issue 62 volume 1. When flung out in space by her enemies, Diana breaks off a piece of her tiara and uses her bracelets to smelt special earrings that can produce limitless amounts of oxygen, allowing the Amazon princess to survive her interstellar experience. Talk about functional fashion. To bring it back to that chess emblem, the now infamous Double W symbol actually didn't make its debut until 1982, with its first appearance being in a free Wonder Woman preview, or issue 287B. After publicly foiling the plans of some crooks, Diana is approached by the creators of the Wonder Woman Foundation to ask if she'll wear the special Double W design they created as her new chest emblem. Diana is a bit hesitant at first, but changes her mind after speaking with her mom, as Diana suddenly realizes the Double W won't just stand for Wonder Woman, but for women everywhere. It's a bit of a stretch, to be sure, especially since the Eagle to Double W emblem switch is really just a move for better branding for the comic book franchise, but at least they tried to give some reasoning to it. Five years later, in the post-crisis relaunch of Wonder Woman, the Double W emblem was still a part of the outfit. This time around, though, the emblem isn't some random creation or branding opportunity. As revealed in Wonder Woman Annual 2, it's shown the emblem was taken directly off of Diana Trevor's bomber jacket, with the symbol itself being from her time with the Women's Auxiliary Fairing Squadron. As you may remember from Episode 1, Diana Trevor crashed onto Paradise Island years before Diana became Wonder Woman, and her heroic sacrifice in killing demonic entity led to the Amazons memorializing the fallen pilot by basing the design of Diana's costume off of the images found on her coat of arms, which is what the Amazons pretty much called her fighter pilot jacket. The Eagle Emblem would come back here and there though, as in issue 101, volume 2, where the Eagle supplants the Double W logo. Later on, once Queen Apollota becomes Wonder Woman and has adventures of her own, the Eagle and the Double W would be used to differentiate between mother and daughter. Queen Apollota, wearing a variation of the classic 1942 Kulots costume, has an eagle on her chest, whereas Diana sports the Double W. 
One interesting element of the Eagle Emblem is its strong invocation of America. The Eagle is, after all, one of the symbols of the American nation, as is Stars and Stripes, along with the red, white, and blue color scheme, all elements of the Wonder Woman costume. But Diana isn't American, she's an Amazon from the island nation of Themyscira. Why then would this representative of Amazonian culture be wearing a star-spangled costume that is seemingly American in every sense of the word? There have been some explanations over the years. In Wonder Woman 159 Volume 1, it's said that Aphrodite designed the Wonder Woman costume specifically to be linked to America, as the goddess foresaw the United States as being a key player in ending World War II. Almost a hundred issues later in issue 250, Queen Apollota gives an alternate explanation as to why the Wonder Woman costume is so darn American. Of all the nations in man's world, we have found that the United States' ideals most closely resemble those of the Amazons, says Queen Apollota, continuing that, and though they often need to be reminded of those ideals, your uniform is patterned after their sacred banner. A nation devoted to education, nobility, and equality, it seems like modern-day America isn't exactly the nation that mirrors those of the Amazon's ideals. But hey, Wonder Woman writers didn't know a reality show host would be running the country in 1978. As already mentioned when talking about the Double W emblem, the post-crisis relaunch had a different reason as to why Wonder Woman's costume had such strong American influences. It was based off of Diana Trevor's jacket which had plenty of patriotic emblems embroidered onto it. Later on, however, an alternate theory is purported as to why Diana's costume is seemingly American. Seemingly is the operative word here because, as Diana explains, her costume isn't American at all. Fellow hero and best pal Black Canary point-blank asks Diana why she basically wears the American flag on her booty. To which Diana smartly replies that it is so American to think that only one culture can have eagles, stars, and stripes as their symbols. Diana goes on to say that Betsy Ross actually got the idea of the American flag from the Amazons. So Diana isn't wearing the symbols of another nation, in fact it's quite the opposite. How is this even possible? How could Betsy Ross have seen Amazonian symbols given that Themyscira was magically hidden from man's world until Diana's heroic debut? Well, it does fit into Wonder Woman mythos, when you remember the Send Forth ritual. This is where children caught in stormy seas are brought to Paradise Island for safekeeping, blessed with Amazon ingenuity, then are returned to man's world, as happened with Julia Capetalis when she was a young girl and the same could have happened to Betsy Ross. It does seem like a major coincidence though that the Amazons would just so happen to have cultural imagery so closely akin to America's. But again, it's not like eagles are a new national symbol, nor are stars. Issue 43 Volume 3 in 2010 actually gives some backstory on what inspired the design of the Wonder Woman costume. Diana born during a hunter's moon, would wear a crimson color just like the red celestial body. And looking to the stars, specifically the constellation of Cassiopeia, is where Queen Apollota got the W idea and the white on blue coloring. The eagle breastplate was to represent Athena as her chief deity, and eagles are definitely a symbol of power in Greek myth, so it's not that huge of a stretch. This retelling does retcon how Diana Trevor influenced the Wonder Woman costume, but it also removes Diana from being an American hero 
and ties her more strongly to Amazon culture, which is a positive because again, Diana isn't an American, she's an Amazon. One arguably troubling, depending on your perspective, aspect of Diana's costume is made even more confusing when you factor in the Amazonian influence of her super suit. Why does it bear so much skin? Surely a race of warriors would know better than to design a battle armor that actually protects its wearer and doesn't leave a human's most vulnerable parts open to injury. As already mentioned, the original reason for Diana's skinful suit could be that Charles Moulton, one Roman's creator, was going against the norms of the time, presenting Diana as a wholly independent and capable woman who was comfortable with her body and unafraid to go against societal norms. But, like we already said, this potentially positive interpretation of Diana's costume was definitely lost over the years, as the character became more overtly sexualized. It's pretty much plain fact that Diana's costume became more and more skin-heavy over the years to please male readers. The majority of comic book readership are straight men, at least that's what's always said, and I do think that trend is changing, which is why female heroes are so overly sexualized. This isn't a problem unique to Wonder Woman, but given her status as one of the first and definitely most famous of all female superheroes, she does set a precedent. Outside of the male gaze, there is one theory regarding the lack of actual clothing to Wonder Woman's costume. Diana, unlike any other Amazon, doesn't need a full coat of armor. She's practically invulnerable as it is. Able to burst through mountains and duke it out with gods, with or without her costume, Diana is naturally built to withstand extreme physical stress. Slapping on a bunch of armor would only lessen Diana's abilities, restricting her speed and motion, thus making her less effective in a fight. Going back to the interlude of issue 43, showing the origins of Diana's costume, we get a better reason for why the Wonder Woman costume is lacking in any real protection for its wear. When the Amazon Palace is designing a rough draft of the Wonder Woman battle armor, she shows Queen Hippolyta a simple costume with a breastplate and a skirt. Queen Hippolyta praises the design, saying that a woman who looks like she wants to fight most definitely will. With this in mind, Diana's rather unthreatening armor was a specific choice by the Queen of the Amazons. And it arguably makes sense. If Diana were to wear a gigantic suit of armor with a huge sword in hand, she definitely wouldn't look like much of an ambassador of peace and equality, which is her true mission in man's world. The brightly colored and bare-skinned nature of Diana's armor makes her look non-threatening, prompting a peaceful reaction rather than a violent one. And besides, as we know, even if things turn sour, Diane is naturally powerful enough to meet any foe, no matter what she's wearing. What's still strange, though, is that throughout the post-crisis run of Wonder Woman, the Amazons always referred to Diana's costume as armor. Again, this is a civilization of skilled warriors, so they would know the difference between a real coat of armor and a spandex superhero suit. And they do, because Diana's everyday outfit isn't the entirety of her Amazonian battle armor. In the opening of Wonder Woman 2 Volume 2, we get a look at the full Wonder Woman battle armor, which adds a helmet, shield, cape, and overall more armored protection to the original costume. We see this armor again when Diana prepares to venture into the dark depths of Themyscira in Wonder Woman 12, and again when she battles the villain's devastation and Medusa. The armor itself has had a few different looks over the years. The first incarnation is Greek-inspired, with Diana's helmet sporting Hermes-style wings. Then in issue 144, we see Diana wearing an eagle battle armor, which first appeared in the Kingdom Come graphic novel. 
issue 209 has a Roman Legion look to it, and later on, in 28 Volume 3, Diana prepares for war while wearing her eagle, bird of prey battle armor again. Regardless of the look, Diana wears her full battle armor when she knows she's going to need it, fighting enemies who are far more dangerous and lethal to her than the average foe. Why doesn't she wear it all the time, you ask? It would make sense. Since Diana isn't completely invulnerable like Superman, the Amazonian armor would definitely help overcome that vulnerability. But again, Diana is durable enough without it, and fast enough to avoid pesky things like bullets. And when sporting a menacing battle armor that has an eagle helmet that looks like it's going to claw your eyes out, you don't really look like an ambassador of peace. One of the unique things about Wonder Woman's costume, or should I say armor, is that there are so many elements to it, most of which are useful tools in Diana's mission of peace in man's world, and not simple accessories. Take Diana's tiara, for example. On the surface, the tiara is merely a metallic headband, or more seriously, a symbol of her royal lineage. And the tiara is both of those things, but in Diana's deft hands, the tiara is a weapon. Nearly indestructible, Diana's tiara can deflect bullets, as she does for the first time in issue 57 volume 1, and only an issue later, she uses the tiara as a boomerang to subdue her enemies for the first time, a trick she'd employ frequently throughout her superheroic career. One Room 66, another example of those origin stories of Diana's costume, deals with the backstory of the tiara. In the issue, Diana is tasked with the mission of retrieving the Lingua Graffa tiara, which knows all languages throughout time. Kept hidden on an island filled with evil monsters, Diana succeeds in her mission and retrieves the linguistically all-knowing tiara. Personally, I'm not a big fan of how the tiara allows Diana to understand all languages, since it detracts from her own Amazonian training in linguistics, so let's just gloss over that strange story, which was retconned anyways after 1987. In the post-crisis world, Diana's tiara ret retains its battle capabilities, and then some. The tiara is a frightening weapon on the off chances Diana actually uses it, able to slice through nearly anything. When ensnared by the snake-like hair of a dark god Deimos, Greek god of terror, Diana slices through her bonds with the tiara, then hurling it at Deimos himself, beheading him. The tiara is so sharp, it can slice through diamond, or even more impressively, it can even pierce Superman's skin, as shown in 219 Volume 2, when Diana hurls her tiara at a brainwashed Superman, slicing his neck open. Superman is invulnerable, as we all know, but he does have a weakness to magic, so it's safe to assume the tiara's ability to slice through the Man of Steel's skin comes from the fact that it is of divine origin, likely forged by the god Hephaestus himself. The tiara is still a symbol of the Themyscirin monarchy too, and when a new government takes over Paradise Island, Diana removes her tiara. She would wear it once more when she's appointed ambassador of the Amazon nation an issue later, ensuring the tiara remained an integral aspect of Diana's superhero costume. Even more important and essential to Diana's costume are her silver bracelets. As covered in episode 2, Diana's silver bracelets aren't exactly unique to her. They're worn by all Amazons, a reminder of the folly of submitting to man's dominance, as said in Wonder Woman 45. This would be a constant throughout Wonder Woman history, save for a ceremony seen in issue 308 volume 1 that links the bracelets to a submission to the ancient code of love and order upheld by the goddess Aphrodite. That's never really been a well-fleshed-out concept in Wonder Woman comics, and for the most part, the bracelets are a permanent reminder of the dangers 
of mankind and defiance of submitting to males. But in the pre-Crisis Wonder Woman universe, the bracelets weren't just symbolic. They also served a functional purpose. The bracelets basically restrained the Amazons' emotions. Without their bracelets, the Amazons, including Diana, would turn into crazed brutes. This is an odd feature of Wonder Woman mythos introduced in Sensation Comics 19, dated July 1943, so then created by Wonder Woman creator Charles Moulton. The first time the no bracelets equals crazy element to the Amazons is introduced here, noting how the Amazons will destroy like a man without their special bracers. Moulton probably had good intentions when creating this odd aspect of Amazonian civilization. Diana and the Amazons' bracelets were a symbol of submission to loving authority. The philosophy of loving submission is rampant throughout early Wonder Woman under Moulton's direction, and Moulton thought that was the ideal way of living, and so without their bracelets, the Amazons would be hurled out of the perfect state achieved by accepting love and submission, and then would act like destructive men. Later on in Wonder Woman history, however, the no bracelets equals crazy plot device would be more closely tied to a far more negative stereotype, that of the crazed woman. In the various instances when Diana is forced to lose her bracelets, like when the cheetah orders her to take them off in Wonder Woman 160, she turns into a belligerent, brutal hulk. The same thing happens in 224 when riots break out on Paradise Island as all the Amazons go nuts when their bracelets are removed. Eventually, Diana would overcome this odd weakness in issue 260, saying how the bracelets allow her, and the other Amazons, to control subconscious desires, then vowing to never let anger get the better of her again, and she casts off her invisible chains, as the story puts it, to then regain her composed self, no bracelets necessary. This does place Diana above the other Amazons, but not in a good way. The no bracelets equals crazy motif makes it so that an entire civilization of intelligent, independent women become literal slaves to their emotions without something simple as bracelets. Not having some seemingly magical item, the Amazons become emotional, crazed wrecks, unconcerned with the safety of others. This depiction of the Amazons definitely ties into the idea that women can't control their emotions and are less inclined to logic and reason than men, an idea that still exists today but was definitely more prominent during the years that these Wonder Woman stories were being written. Fortunately, into the post-crisis relaunch of Wonder Woman, the no bracelets equals crazy motif would be removed entirely. In the relaunch, the bracelets once again serve as a forever reminder of the subjugation of Heracles, worn by all Amazon women. Diana's weakness, where if a man were to weld chains onto Diana's bracelets, as mentioned in episode 3, is also gone. There are even some meta moments when Diana's enemies try to weld chains to her bracers, believing the act will depower Diana, to which she then easily breaks the chains and tells her foes not to believe everything they read. This would be a good time as any to mention that, when Diana first entered Ban's world, she worked with the publicist Mindy Mayer to promote her mission and Amazonian ideals of peace and equality. Mindy, a businesswoman before anything else, took a less noble approach and made a mega brand out of Wonder Woman, selling all sorts of merchandise and even creating a comic book recounting Diana's adventures. So yeah, there's a comic book of Wonder Woman within Wonder Woman comic books. Taking it back to the bracelets though, even though all Amazons wear silver bracers, Diana's are particularly unique. Hers were made from the metal of the Aegis shield, the godly shield worn by both Zeus and Athena. Because of this, Diana's bracelets can form a kind of 
magical barrier when she crosses them, like in her battle with Power Girl referenced in the last episode, and later on even be able to summon Zeus's lightning. In the new 52 relaunch, another feature was added to Diana's bracelets after the god of the forge Hephaestus tinkers with them. With but a thought, Diana can summon swords out of thin air, one for each bracer. This brings us to a controversial, at least in my opinion, aspect of Wonder Woman's costume and interpretation of the character as a whole, her use of swords. As the magic swords out of nowhere bracers showcase, there's a recent tradition of Wonder Woman always bringing a sword into battle. And with her newly empowered bracers, writers didn't even need to explain how Diana got a sword out of nowhere because she could pull one out whenever she wanted. Now, Diana bringing a sword into battle makes sense. She is a trained Amazon warrior, and so she is definitely trained in swordplay. But Diana is also an ambassador of peace, and the idea of her always carrying a lethal weapon goes against that mission entirely. And I say the depiction of Diana with a sword is a recent creation because it is. Yes, we do see Diana use a blade when jousting on kangaroos in the contest to become Wonder Woman in issue 1, but that is strictly in a non-lethal setting. Diana was using a sword as part of a contest of skill. She wasn't trying to kill her opponent. We actually don't see Diana ever bring a sword into battle until issue 253 volume 1, at least as far as I can tell, when Diana leads the Amazons in a battle against an evil being known as the Empress. Other than that, Diana doesn't really bring a sword into battle with the foe she's fighting for keeps. If anything, Diana's weapon of choice is the battle axe, not the sword. When venturing into the dark depths of Themyscira, prepared to battle all sorts of monstrosities, Diana brings a double W battle axe. Same goes for when Diana battles Circe in the War of the Gods storyline, and again when she battles Medusa. Diana even says herself that she's trained in ambidextrous dual axe techniques, issue 25, volume 3. But in every instance Diana is sporting a big ol' battle axe, she's also wearing her full Amazon battle armor. Diana only brings a lethal weapon into battle under the most extreme circumstances, when she knows she may have to mortally harm her opponent with no other option available. The new 52 version of Diana, who is always seen charging into battle with a sword in hand, goes against the character's traditions and ideals. Diana is a battle axe kind of lady, and would never bring one along unless the situation called for it. Whether it be a sword, battle axe, spear, or whatever bladed weapon Diana may be holding, none are Wonder Woman's true weapon of choice. That honor goes to her golden lasso. If you've ever read a Wonder Woman comic or seen her on TV, you know about the lasso. Out of every item or piece of costume discussed on this episode, all pale in comparison to Wonder Woman's mighty golden lariat. The lasso is just so embedded into the mythos of Wonder Woman, and stands out as a crime-fighting tool entirely unique to the character. Almost as old as Wonder Woman herself, the lasso has had quite the comic book history too, and you know we're going to cover all the most important points right now. Making its debut alongside Diana in Wonder Woman's first appearance, the first origin story of the lasso was actually given in the pages of Sensation Comics 006. No simple rope, Wonder Woman's lasso was fashioned out of the metal made from Queen Apollo's golden girdle, a gift from the gods. Queen Apollo herself commissions the Amazon Smith Metalla, on-the-nose names were a thing in the Golden Age, to create a lasso from the girdle, a direct command from an even higher power, namely Athena and Aphrodite. 
said to be super flexible with near infinite elasticity, the lasso, made out of tiny links of the golden girdle, actually looks more like a chain than a rope within the panels of this issue. The original lasso, as more chain than rope, definitely has some bondage elements imbued into it, given this artistic depiction. Making it even more strongly tied to the ideas of dominance and submission is a magical power blessed upon the lasso by the patron goddesses of the Amazons. After praying all night to Athena and Aphrodite, the goddesses decree that Diana has proved herself bound by love and wisdom, and so they give her the power to control others whomsoever the magic lasso binds must obey, as the goddesses tell the Amazon. And they aren't kidding around. The original Golden Age lasso can force people to do anything, no matter what. So long as the wielder of the lasso commands it, the person ensnared by it must obey. Wonder Woman's creator, Charles Moulton, was also a professor of psychology and is accredited with having developed the first lie detector tests. Many link this fact with Wonder Woman's golden lasso, but the truth-telling power of the lasso wouldn't come around for another 40 years. It's more likely that the lasso is inspired by Moulton's philosophy of submitting to loving authority. With the lasso in hand, Diana can bind anyone, physically and mentally, forcing them to follow the Amazon ideals of peace, love, and willing submission. A few issues later, in Sensation Comics 8, the lasso would stop being depicted as a thin chain and become a legit golden rope, the physical depiction of the lasso most people would be used to today. And, as you can imagine, since it's pretty par for the course with Wonder Woman comics, the lasso has several conflicting origins given down the road. The first comes with Wonder Woman 01, where it's shown the lasso was already made by Aphrodite, turning the lasso into a gift from the gods rather than an Amazonian creation. Why Moulton would change at the lasso's origin only a few months after its debut can really only be explained as some lazy storytelling. Readers already knew Diana had a magic lasso, so by devoting more panels to its creation during Wonder Woman's first origin story in her first issue would take more space than needed. A similar created by Aphrodite origin is given years later in Wonder Woman 45, only for a revamped source story to be given in Wonder Woman 50. Another example of an origin tale told by Diana's equipment itself, this story has the lasso acting as narrator, telling readers how Diana was tasked by Aphrodite to imbue special qualities into the lasso by completing specific tasks. Diana heats the lasso in the fires of Dread Island to make it unbreakable, stretches the lasso out and makes it super elastic by latching it onto a giant bird, and then dips it into the pool of truth foam to grant it the power to command others. Even though this story does conflict with earlier tales on the lasso, it does at least give you a pretty good scope of what the unbreakable golden rope can do. Besides, it gets much worse later on, when later issues have the lasso being made out of Amazonium, being in the hands of Diana when she was a kid, and others making it have voice responder abilities like the plane, so it's made to be out kind of like a robot. The lasso is, however, purely magical, as seen in Wonder Woman 54, when the lasso doesn't work because Diana is in the domain of the wizard Merlin. And only magic can really explain half of what Diana makes the lasso do, from making walls to deflect bullets, to creating human-like devils of herself, to creating a bare-bones plane by propelling herself and friends through the air. Of course, as impressive as those feats are, the most powerful aspect of the lasso is its ability to bend people to the user's will. As mentioned in previous episodes, this isn't a feature limited to Diana, 
as her enemies regularly steal the lasso to then subdue the mighty Amazon, especially in the Silver Age, when around issue 150 this happens in almost every story. Certain beings are also shown to be immune to the lasso, like Gorilla Space Invaders, Dinosaur Beings, or the villain Astart, though no real explanation is given beyond the lasso has no effect on them. So it's really just a way of making the story more compelling rather than pointing out a specific weakness of the lasso. Outside of those select individuals, the lasso can compel 99.9% .9 of the world's population to do just about anything, making it an incredibly powerful weapon. Diana could effectively eradicate all crime in the world so long as she forced humanity to follow the peaceful ways of the Amazons. This fact is pointed out in One Room in 231, when an evil Egyptian empress named Osira is brainwashing the entire world into peace. Diana openly admits she could have done the exact same thing years ago with the lasso, but forcing people into peace would have been an immoral act and a false reality. Diana's right, of course, but she shouldn't get so high and mighty, because she's definitely guilty of using the lasso to her own ends. Not too long after her encounter with Osira, Diana uses the lasso to mind-wipe the original Diana Prince to then protect her own civilian identity in issue 237. Queen Apollota does the same to Diana, mind-wiping her knowledge of the future so that she may be a better crime fighter in the present. I'm not going to admonish Diana because, really, having a tool of such a measurable power, one that can basically fix any problem to fit your own ends, is incredibly tempting, if not wholly corruptive. The Lasso would seemingly get a downgrade in power after the post-crisis relaunch of 1987, becoming the Lasso of Truth and losing its compulsion powers. And as with most things in the revamped Wonder Woman universe after 1987, the Lasso also received a new origin. Right before Diana is about to venture into Man's World, having newly won the title of Wonder Woman on Themyscira, the God of the Forge Hephaestus is making the Golden Lasso on the fly, tasked with its creation by his fellow Olympians in order to aid Diana in her mission against the war god Ares. Hephaestus notes that this lasso is forged from the golden girdle of Gai herself, so no god or mortal might ever break its bonds. Hestia, goddess of hearth and home, adds some more insight into the divinely created lasso's power. This weapon shall bring Diana great power, says Hestia. Through it, I shall give her reign over the fires of truth, that the hearts and thoughts of all men may be opened unto her. So, unlike before, the lasso is capable of bringing out the truth from those ensnared by its golden lengths, and is no longer able to force the user's will upon captives of the lasso. The golden lasso as a lasso of truth is probably what most of you are familiar with, and don't get into your heads that the truth power of the lariat is some sort of downgrade, because if anything, the lasso is even more powerful in this incarnation. We first see the power of the revamped lasso in Wonder Woman 4 Volume 2, where Diana is able to slay the demonic goddess Decay simply by binding the malign entity into the lasso's fiery fibers. Linked to the flames of Hestia, the lasso is said to be a constantly renewing source of life, and is then the antithesis to a creature like Decay who is an incarnation of death. The same sort of thing happens in Wonder Woman 18, when the lasso acts as a protective circle against the dark magics of Circe. The power of truth integral to the lasso is also a far more powerful feature against evil than you'd really think. It's only with the lasso's ability to force captives to see and understand the truth is Diana able to actually defeat the war god Ares. 
when ensnared by the Golden Lariat, Ares can see that his plan to start a massive worldwide conflict is inherently flawed. While the God of War would thrive in the beginnings of such a war, ultimately it would lead to no life on Earth, and so there would be no one to worship him or to continue to battle, acts which sustain the God. During the Perez run, the lasso is always depicted as a golden rope burning with magical flames. Again, these are the flames of Hestia, which also grants the lasso some limited power over fire, as Diana can literally corral flames like a cowboy at a rodeo. And while the lasso is linked to the goddess Hestia, the gods do tell Diana, and point out to her many times later on, that this is her lasso. Fate would have it that the lasso was always intended to be wielded by Diana, and it can only be used to its highest capacity by her. The upper reaches of Diana and the lasso's power is demonstrated in Wonder Woman 136 Volume 2. Combining her new godly powers, Diana had recently died and was resurrected as the god of truth, with the lasso's inherent connection to the cosmic force that is the truth, Diana is able to make the memory of Donna Troy, who was once Wonder Girl, into a living truth, effectively bringing Donna back to life. Diana never pulls a similar stunt later on, likely because she loses her divine powers, but this instance does show how powerful the lasso truly is when in the right or wrong hands. Not simply able to bring out or reveal the truth, the lasso doesn't just magically compel people to speak honestly, it actually reaches into their minds. This feature of the lasso is first hinted at in Wonder Woman 13, when Diana uses the lasso on Queen Apollota to link her and Heracles' mind, wrapping them in Hestia's flames of revelation, allowing them to experience the memories and emotions of the other. Diana pulls a similar trick in Wonder Woman 55, when she uses the lasso to mind link with Vanessa Capetalus, so the two can then bring their brains together to defeat the evil telepath Dr. Psycho. The lasso, in effect, creates an instantaneous mental connection with the holder and whoever is bound in its golden lengths. Normally, Diana is in full control of this rapport, but villains have used it against her in the past. When battling Devastation, a godly created villain that serves as a dark mirror to Diana, Diana lassos the villain only for Devastation to use the connection to invade Diana's mind. As Devastation puts it, the lasso's connection goes both ways. Even though it's a bit intrusive to dive into someone's brain, Diana would use this ability of the lasso herself to an even higher degree. In Wonder Woman 15 Volume 3, Diana ropes the villain Captain Nazi, then diving into his subconscious to reveal the pain and loss driving his racist and villainous actions. A heartfelt scene, yes, but it also points to the lasso's true power and ability. Diana can, essentially, dive into the deepest, darkest reaches of a person's psyche with the lasso, making their greatest fears and insecurities come to life. Genocide, a powerful villain who is able to knock Diana out and steal the lasso, proves this fact. Literally sewing the lasso into its own body, Genocide is able to use the Golden Lariat's sophisticated telepathic abilities to utterly beat down the entire Justice League of America, forcing their subconscious fears to rise to the surface. Diana does warn all the heroes not to face this foe, since she is entirely aware of what her lasso can do in the wrong hands, but they don't really listen to their own detriment. And for those wondering why someone other than Diana can wield the lasso, note that Genocide is actually the body of a deceased Diana from an alternate future brought to life. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing, but the main takeaway is that the lasso is a far more destructive and powerful weapon than you normally think.
But the true power of the lasso is never really showcased when it's used on others. Diana actually has the most to gain when the lasso is used on herself. Literally attached to Diana's hip most of the time, the lasso forces Diana to constantly confront the truth. In a day-long interview with Lois Lane, told in the pages of Wonder Woman 170, the hard-hitting reporter asked Diana how she can be so comfortable with fighting supervillains, then watching newborns die in impoverished countries, all while living a life of luxury in the city. Lois is basically calling Diana out on the many contradictions of her life, as she's a warrior, ambassador of peace, Amazon, superhero, and international aid worker all at once. Diana replies that with the lasso in her hands, she can't deny the contradictions of her life and personality, but must always accept them. As uncomfortable as the truth may be, Diana is forced to see it, recognize it, and find harmony in its reality. And because of that, Unencumbered by the lies we tell ourselves every day, Diana is made into a better hero, one who understands herself fully and completely. This would be essential to defeating a demonic dragon in the Justice League tale A League of One. In the story, Diana learns that if this dragon were to face the entire Justice League, the League would die, including Superman. Diana cleverly takes out the entire League to protect them, then goes off to face the dragon alone. But the dragon's power is fueled by lies and deceptions. The dragon's fire, then, has no effect on Diana, as she is so utterly honest with herself, setting her apart from the rest of the League, who have secret identities or hidden pasts. Meditating with the lasso, or simply having it in her hands, makes Diana a person devoid of untruths. And in a world where the truth is so hard to come by, where the true motivations of people are never certain, having a hero who is so honest and truthful to herself and others, is refreshing. Diana isn't a hero who hides behind a mask or deceptions. She is always under the full light of the truth, a gift the lasso affords her, and is truly the secret power of the Golden Lariat. And that, everyone, brings us to the end of yet another episode of Comics 401. I'm Michael Delamonte. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with yet another episode on all things One Woman. But in the meantime, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to us on iTunes for all the most recent updates. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.